Well, um, when I was a college student, many of you know I went to the University of Tennessee. And when I was there in my time there, I really did not care that much about following Jesus. Um, just wasn't up on the top 10 uh, things in my life uh, and list. And so I had grown up around the church, but I really didn't understand so much about the stuff that we talk about in week in, week out in RUF. And I understand a little bit about grace and how God came to accept me, but in the main, God was deeply problematic for me. He was a guy to get off your back. He was never really happy with you. And he was actually out to ruin the fun that you wanted to have in life. That's kind of how I thought about God for the vast majority of my college experience. So for many of you, I, would have, I don't even know if I would have shown up to something called RUF. But that, really, that reality began to change my senior year. I moved in with a friend uh, he was somebody from my biology classes who uh, happened to need a roommate, and so he asked me if I wanted to move in. And I had always liked him. I had gotten along with him in academic settings, and, uh, but our social lives just had zero overlap, so we just had no common friends. And early in that first fall together of my senior year, he invited me to this Christian fellowship gathering on campus that met weekly. And I asked him what it was like, and he told me, and he said, well, a campus minister gets up, he talks a little bit from the Bible, we sing, and then we hang out afterwards. I promptly responded by saying, thanks for the invite, that sounds too Jesus-y for me, so I'm not going to go, but I really appreciate you asking me. It was actually RUF that he was asking me to come to. So I, love, I do love that story. But he did say this, he said, he said, okay, you know, well, no problem, I just, do you mind if we come back over to the apartment afterwards and you know, order some pizzas, play some games and stuff. I was like, sure house too, man. You come on, y'all come on. Well, that began, to, that began to be a bomb drop in my life. And I'll tell you why. Because week in and week out, my roommate and his friends consistently welcomed me into their world. And I began to quickly see how they lived their lives. They were incredibly normal. And not like I had thought, they were not religious fanatics. But they were kind and interested in my life. They treated each other with compassion and forgiveness. They lived their lives out differently on campus. They thought about and used alcohol differently. The guys didn't talk about girls in the same way that I had talked about girls and was used to. And even the girls carried themselves with a dignity and grace that most of my female friends just simply didn't. Here's the thing. They weren't perfect, but their lives were incredibly compelling, inviting, I dare say, even magnetic. And in the end, it drew me in. It drew me in not only to community, but to the one whom that community was all centered around, Jesus himself. Now, why do I share that story with you? We are in a section of the letter that Peter wrote that deals with what it looks like to live out the Christian life. And, and his point is, is that all of our lives are to be marked by this fleshing out of our new identity in Jesus. You'll have to remember, he's talked about how we live out our lives to governing authorities, to our work and marriage. And Peter tonight is saying, this is how your new identity, if you are in Jesus, is to be fleshed out, here it is, in the broadest relationships of your life, in the very nitty-gritty and detailed relationships of your life around Christians, and around non-Christians. Why? Why would he say this? Why would he say, this is how your life ought to look? It's really simple. You see, if Christ has given grace to you, your life is to be marked 
by a life of that grace. You see how that works? If Christ has been gracious to you, that our lives are to be marked, our relationships are to reflect that grace to the watching world. And here's the thing. If you've ever tried to do this for one nanosecond, you realize it's not natural. Because all of us live where? At the center of our own universes. And I love what Rick Warren's book, if you've ever read it, it's called The Purpose Driven Life. It's a huge New York Times bestseller. The very first sentence, does anybody know what it says? It's not about you. What a great way to start a book. It's not about you. Peter is saying in so many words, it's not about you. It's really not about you. And what he is saying is, it's about the way that you love those around you and the type of community that you're building. Here's what Peter's context is. You have to keep this in mind. All of the instruction that he's saying is saying, this is how you live as exiles. This is how you live as sojourners in the presence of a watching world that doesn't share the same beliefs as you do. And when he addresses all of us, Peter is telling all of us, if you take the name of Christ, what type of community we need to be. And it's really just two things. It's a seeking community and a suffering community. And those are going to kind of serve as our two main headings tonight. So let's take a look. Let's take a look, first of all, at this idea of a seeking community. Did you catch it there in verses 8 through 12? A seeking community. What do I mean when I say a seeking community? Well, did you see those very first verses there? Peter rolls off a list of about five, what I like to call dispositions of heart, um, character virtues, ways that our relationships ought to be characterized with one another. Let's just look at them together. Having unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Let me just touch on those just ever so briefly, because unless you really understand what he's talking about, you don't know how we're supposed to be characterized in our relationships. Listen to what he says about unity of mind. This is a like-mindedness. It refers to having a common heritage of faith and ethical system. And it's foundational because it was, it's what linked people from different races, different religions coming into Christianity, different socioeconomic classes, men and women, kids and adults. It was that idea that we have a unity of mind together. Sympathy. Another word for it is understanding. It's that concept of being able to see people's lives in a deferential way where you take the knee giving your ways up for other people. Does that make sense? In the biblical sense, that's what sympathy is all about. Brotherly love is pretty straightforward, right? Peter views the Christian community as family. And so in the same way that you have siblings, if you're not an only child, Peter is saying that Christian community is to be as close-knit and as tight as that. And in fact, it actually becomes the center point, the relational nexus for the Christian. What I mean by that is that if you have a real sibling that is your blood, that is not a Christian, and you are a Christian, you are closer, as it were. You have more in common. Your story, your spiritual DNA has more in common with a Christian from another country than you do with your own blood. That's the way that Peter views us. That's brotherly love. Fourthly, a tender heart. I love this because literally in the Greek it says good bowels. I love that. The bowels were the heart, were the seat of the emotion. Okay, it was, We think of the heart being right here in the middle of our chest, but the, but the, 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 the seat of our emotions in, in, in the way that Greco-Roman uh, folks thought was it was in your belly, right? Um, 
And uh, we sometimes express this. Have you all ever seen a kid that's really cute, like a little baby? And what do you say? I just could what? I could eat them up, right? Because you, you say that I want them in my belly. You know what I mean? And that's the, that's the, that, you just can't the point, okay? The idea hurt. So now next time you, you see somebody, you can say, oh, I just have, I just have good bowels for you, okay? A humble mind. I've lost you. I know. Come back. A humble mind. It was a way of saying this, that I I declare myself powerless, myself powerless to defend myself. I love this. You could imagine this would be very, very unheard of in the first century, that this would be seen as weakness. Because what it is, the point in all of this that Peter is saying is that if you're going to be the sort of community that lives out your Christian identity, you're going to have to be the sort of community that seeks these things out in your relationships, especially with other Christians. Peter is saying this, that Christians will seek out in themselves these sort of things as they seek out one another in their Christian family. Now, the moment we say this, this pops up, well, my gosh, Ryan, if I live like that, that means I'm going to be giving up a lot of my rights for the sake of other people. And you know what Peter's saying? You got it. That's exactly right. So I just ask you, does your Christianity come so home for you that you would say, you, brother or sister in Christ, over me? You over me. The gospel has the power to do that, and we're going to see how in just a little bit. But that's the sort of thing that we're supposed to be marked by. And the idea here is Peter is saying, this is what will draw in the watching world. You might say, if I seek these postures of heart and develop them in my life, then people around me who do not share me, may, these virtues may ridicule me. There actually may be a social cost. You know what Peter says? You're exactly right again. That's why he says in verse 9, did you catch it? Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Peter is saying this, that when there are those who speak evil against you, you are not permitted, if you are a Christian, to speak in kind in response. You are not able to respond like that. You are to bless. You are to speak well. In other words, he is saying this, that this is the ethic that ought to be on display within the believing community. We are not allowed to remain indifferent to those who revile us. Neutrality is not an option. And in citing Psalm 34, that's verses 10 through 12. That's an Old Testament text, Psalm 34. It's one of Peter's favorites. He is saying this, that seeing good days consists in living and loving this way. If we want to see a life that flourishes, not only for ourselves, but for the world around us, Peter is saying, this is the way you must live. Not in a way that in any way tries to secure our salvation by living these ways. Like, oh God, look how nice I am to people. Now welcome me into your home. That's not what he's saying. No, he's saying, you've already been welcomed home. You already belong in the bosom of your Father. The Son's blood has already been applied to your life. Now, in light of that, go live this way. That's what he's saying. That's what he's getting at. Well, I think this is wonderful because it does press in a little bit 
on the, uh, the old college campus, right? Because the very thing of like uh, FOMO and uh, I'm going to break my commitments all the time and the different ways that we tend to live as college students, right? Oh, I'm going to do this, but then five minutes later I send the text, say, oh man, I can't make it, da 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 when, when you just know you shouldn't be doing that, as it were. It's just easy and convenient, you know? Peter is saying that's not the mark of, a, of the way a Christian is called to live. That we're faithful in our relationships. And here's one of the reasons why I think it's so important. Because when you begin to get this into your bones, it means that the community takes precedent over your life as an individual. And you can write that down if you want. That's in a very important deal. That the community takes precedent over the life of the individual in Christianity. That's what he's getting at. Um, New York Times writer David Brooks, I'm going to show you a quote. He once wrote this. Don't, don't pop it up there quite yet. Did it get in there? Did I put it in there? Ah, uh, crap. Well, oh well. They didn't get in there. I'll just have to read it to you then. Um, it's in my notes. That's all that matters. Um, the important thing here is that, that, that David Brooks is going to say this. To have a fulfilling life, you have to make promises. To have a fulfilling life, you have to make promises. You have to surrender some freedom of choice to taste a higher freedom. In other words, the thing that we really want, community, being known, friendship, fellowship, if that's what we really want, we have to get beyond the thing that we think we need, which is autonomy which is a selfish way of living, which is me. So I put it like this. The thing we really want is on the backside of the thing that we think we cannot live without. That's what he's getting at. You were made for community. You were made to commit yourself to other people. Live long enough and you'll see tons of accomplished people who do not have any friends or community. They are rich. They are loaded. They have worked their whole life and they're lonely. They've got nobody to love. And Peter is saying, do not live that way. Instead, unity of heart, all of you, unity of mind, sympathy. This is the idea. We're the people that seek out this sort of community. The last thing I just want to say is is this. I think this forces us to ask the sort of question of of what sort of folks on this campus do you want to be known for? Are you going to be, I want you to, think, I want you to be thinking about the barriers that exist on this campus. The Greek and non-Greek divide. The white color of people divide. The uh, freshman, senior divide. And I want you to apply Christianity, what Peter is saying here, and say, does the Christian community bear out those same marks? And if so, those same divides, and if so, we must fight like mad to remove them. Why? Because Peter says, the world will see the sort of community you are, and it will exist as a case for the truthfulness that a dead man walked out of the grave. That's why it's so important. So a seeking community. Secondly, The other type of community that we're going to be is a suffering community. Peter is saying in verses 13 to 17, there will be folks who will do you harm if you follow Jesus. 
Look at verse 17, 13 here. He says this. He says, Now who is there to do harm to you if you are zealous for what is good? Now there's two senses I need to speak of. First is, Peter is saying it in this sense. If you just live the normal good life in the culture that you're in, you're not going to create a stink. That's what he's saying. So don't be a jerk, right? I mean, pay your taxes. Uh, be kind to your neighbors. Keep your yard cut, that sort of stuff. I mean, that, don't play your music too loud. If you live like that, the watching world's not going to be upset with you. But the point is, is also he speaks in a different sense. And he is asking this rhetorically. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? And at that point, <laughs> the Christians in the, in the first world would have been like, uh, Peter, uh, like I mean, do you know what it's like to be a Christian in our day and age? And here's the thing. Peter is very sober-minded about what it means to be a Christian in his day and age. Do y'all remember who was in power, who the emperor was? His name was Nero. One of the most wicked emperors that Rome ever saw. And we have actual writings from the early centuries, from old historians. Anybody classics majors in here? I didn't think so. Not an old popular, not a popular major on TCU's campus. But uh, there was a writer, a historian, his name was Tacitus. Has anybody heard the name Tacitus? I didn't think so. And he wrote in his annals, he wrote this about, he wrote this about Nero. This is a writing about the way that Nero uh, treated Christians. Let me read this to you. He's saying, Nero did this to Christians. In their very deaths, they, Christians, were made the subjects of sport. For they were covered with hides, the hides of wild beasts, and were worried to death by dogs. Now, when he says worried to death, he doesn't mean that in a metaphorical sense. He literally means dogs are ripping Christians apart because they're wearing animal hides. They're being harassed to their deaths. He says this as well or they were nailed to crosses, or set fire to. And this is the most sadistic. And when the day waned, burned to serve for the evening lights. What is he saying? Nero had human tiki torches. Christians were covered in tar, impaled on spikes, and lit to be able to keep the party lights going at Nero's parties. Peter absolutely notes the world that he's living in. And so when we begin to think that we sort of are living in the worst part of, of the story of Christianity, we need to remember Christianity actually thrived in an environment like this. And there is a very real sense where our culture, when it becomes increasingly divided and separated from Christianity, I'm sorry, but the soil just gets richer. It just gets richer. And Christianity just continues to blossom and grow. And that's, the, that's one of the things that Peter is going to try to say as he talks about being a suffering community. What is Peter else is he saying? He's saying that suffering is likely to come. But when it comes our way, we aren't surprised. He does not want you to have fear of them, verse 14, he says. And he also says that we are to have a reason for the hope that we profess. Did you catch it there in verse 15 and 16? He's saying this, you don't have to have a PhD in theology to be able to respond to people who ask you questions about what it means to be a Christian. But he is saying, you better know what you're talking about. And I think that's a great challenge for you as a college student, is this, if you are a Christian, 
Are you actually growing in the substance and the depth of what you believe in? You see, Peter does not want you to remain infants. He wants you to grow up in the maturity that we talked about. And so, I just say this. If you go out throughout your college experience, and the knowledge base and the love that you have for Jesus has not changed one iota from the time that you started college to the time that you've left, you've really missed an opportunity. You're really missing what Peter is getting at here. Now, I will say this. RUF wants to be a place where you can come and where you can grow. And if you talk to some seniors who have been here, they will tell you how God has met them, changed them, and grown them in their experience here. And I just want to say, keep coming. Keep coming back. You never know what God's going to do. And here's the thing I want to say this about this idea of gentleness and respect. I mentioned this earlier to the, prayer, the team that was praying beforehand. I do want to say this. Peter is saying that when we talk to our non-Christian friends about what it means to be a Christian, did you catch the two words there? We're supposed to do so in what way? With gentleness and with respect. And frankly, that is, I've seen that lacking in the way that we tend to do that. You see, here's the thing. When you're talking to your non-Christian friends and you get in those arguments in your apartments and, you know, it's like a drunken binger and somebody's ready to talk to you about God, which happens very regularly, I know. What's the most important thing? Is the most important thing to win the argument? Or is the most important thing to win the person? And what Peter is saying is if you win the argument but you lose the person, you've lost the argument. Because it's people that matter to Jesus. And it's not our job, Christians, to be Christian jerks in the hope that non-Christians would come to know Jesus. But instead, we take the manner and the disposition of our Lord Himself and we're kind to people who do not believe the same thing that we do. And, we, and the text tells us that we give our lives away for them. That's the picture that Peter wants to say. And to do that will actually be a real suffering. Let me share a story with you. Many of you are familiar with the story of uh, Corey Ten Boom. She wrote uh, in the mid in the mid 1900s, and she was a uh, she was detained in a German concentration camp at a place called Ravensbrück. And years later, she was speaking in Munich in 1947 on her experience there. Now she was a Christian, and she recounts an event after this particular speaking engagement where she was speaking in the forgiveness that God gives. And after the talk, here it is, a former guard from Ravensbrook approaches her when the talk is over. And guess what? She recognizes him. She recognizes him. But he does not know who she is. Right? And this is what she says. And I quote her at length here. The man comes up. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. And I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, which is just a German term of endearment, his hand came out. Will you forgive me? Corey Ten Boom writes, and I stood there. I whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and I could not. 
I could not have been, it could not have been many seconds that he stood there, his hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do, for I had to do it. I knew that. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And I still stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed. I can lift my hand. I can do that. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me and as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all of my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands. The former guard and the former prisoner I had never known. Here it is. God's love so intensely as I did then. Did you catch what she said? She said, I had never known God's love to me so intensely as I did in that moment. Why? Because in the act of forgiving, she knew God's love for her. In other words, the ability to suffer wrong committed against her was rooted in seeing how God had given forgiveness to her. And that's what this text is driving us to. Are we putting on display to TCU, to the watching world in both word and deed, what a life following after Jesus actually looks like? One of the greatest reasons for people to remain closet Christians, as it were, is fear. Fear of suffering or more likely fear of people's opinions of you. And me at the top of my list... I mean, I need the approval of a thousand people to be okay. And what the gospel is saying is, is that it has the power to come home to us and how we think about other people's opinions of us and actions toward us. They cease to matter as much as Jesus' does, as His opinion and His actions for us. And Peter is saying this, when you have set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, you're able to endure suffering. Why? Why? Why are we able to do this? Well, did you catch verse 18? You probably didn't because it's not printed, but you can if it's in your Bible. (laughs) For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. Peter is calling us to be this sort of community, this sort of family, for those inside the church and for those outside of it. This is the life of sojourners and exiles. But here is the thing. Peter insists on saying, you cannot do this by grit. Y'all know what I mean by grit? Just trying harder, bearing down a little bit more. You cannot do it. It will not sustain you. Instead, he is saying, you have to see the one who sought us and suffered for us. Jesus, the one who pursued us and in so doing suffering because of it. And when you begin to see that, you begin to see that you have real power to be able to seek out, to seek out the sort of community that He lays forth. When you 
see Him dying for you and being welcomed into His very heart when you did not deserve it, to that degree, you'll be able to seek out and to suffer from others if need be. Well, this is the good news for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank You that You love us like this. And we ask that You would take these things and push them deep down into our hearts that it might change us. And that You, O Lord, would help us to be the sort of people that loves like this and that loves a community like this. Or would you make us the sort of people on campus and we lift this up in your name. Amen.